Good morning, grace to all of you. It is indeed a privilege and a joy <clears throat> to uh, continue our time this morning in the Word of God. Just ask you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and we'll be looking this morning at our Lord's feeding of the 5,000. Mark chapter 6, and I'll begin reading from verse 30. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not have even time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going, and many recognized them, and ran there together on foot from all the cities, and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd And he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may come into the surrounding countryside and villages and and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish And looking up towards heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves. And he kept giving them to the disciples to set them before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we bow before you because you are the Lord, you are the Kurios, you are the creator, you are our master. And we bow before you as, as Jesus, God saves. Lord, we are your people. You have come to shepherd us. You have come to redeem us. And you lead us and you direct us and you guide us by your Holy Spirit through your word. And so our great cry at this very moment is that you would open the eyes of our hearts to behold the wonderful things in your law. Lord, I pray that it would be your voice that we would hear. Thank you again for these wonderful men and women and for the work that you're doing in their midst. And I pray that the result of our time this morning is that you would be even more greatly exalted. And the saints would be even more equipped for the work of service. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, um, in our church on Sunday mornings, we're going through the book of Mark. And it's been a real privilege. And as I said last week, this is a, an extreme privilege for me to be able to speak in English. And uh, I'm not even sure if I can do that well anymore. <laughs> but uh, regardless, we're going to study this text together this morning. And... 
This is a, a passage I believe will encourage you. On a scale of miracles, this is probably the, the biggest miracle that Jesus performed. And not necessarily the most important, but it has a massive impact. And uh, we're going to see what this means this morning. It's helpful to know that this is really his last miracle in Galilee. He's been preaching, he's been healing, he's been teaching, and he's been traveling throughout the country. And this is essentially his last work there. Galilee is a place about 50 miles long, 25 miles wide. It had 205 villages. And uh, the greatest would have been around 10,000 people. The smallest would have been anywhere from 50 to 100. So there are many, many people packed in this area. And this region is really known for, for having grown the most opposition against Rome. Right? This is Galilee. It's really the poorest region. It's the peasant region. It's the fishing region. Uh, there's people there that are poor. And so this is kind of, I'd liken it to the, the Taliban area. This is where they're raising up the terrorists. This is where they're raising up the, the men that are going out and you know, slaying and attacking and leading revolts against Rome. And so we see now here in our text that Jesus is in the area again, and when they find out he's there, they just go, they go crazy in verse 33. They recognize what's going on, and it says they ran together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of Jesus. So they're running around the lake. Um, where these people are beginning to run from is probably about 16 kilometers, from eight, nine, ten miles from where Jesus is. Right, they're not hopping in their Honda Civic, but they're running. We see many of them are so excited, they're running. And as the first people are running, they're catching steam. They're grabbing people from other villages. And those people are saying, what's going on? They're running through the cities. And they just grab more and more people. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. And so they just travel. Men, women, and children all the way around the lake. And so Jesus has gone ahead of them across by boat. And verse 34 says, when Jesus went ashore... He saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You've heard many sermons, I think, on this text. We understand this word compassion, this black dawn, just uh, describing the internal reaction from the physical bowels of the man. That his heart was so turned and wrenched by what he saw that he felt physical compassion upon them. But the question is, what, what caused him to respond this way? What turned his heart towards the people? What evoked this feeling of intensity? And it says clearly that they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is important to understand. It doesn't say they were people uh, without leaders. It doesn't say they were people without a president. It doesn't say they were people without Pharisees or Sadducees or legalists. But it says that they were like people without a shepherd. 5,000 men, the text says, have traveled around. We don't know how many women and children. Oppressed by Rome. Taxed to death. Led astray by the legalism, by the empty teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. These people are poor. Uh, Most of them are uneducated. This is not Orange County. This is not uh, Prague. These are not the Jerusalemites. 
They're not the upper class. And his heart is broken. Jesus understands that they're like people without a shepherd. They have plenty of teachers. They have the Pharisees. These are the men who do not teach the word of God but have substituted for their empty tradition. They have the Sadducees, the, the liberals, just emptying the word of God with its power and of its contents. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus knows they're led by the zealots as well. Like I said before, this is really the, the people who are uh, the antagonists against Rome, leading insurrections, attacking the soldiers, teaching the people how to hate, how to kill, how to destroy. And they were, lastly, they're led by the Herodians. The Herodians were the Jewish leaders who were pro-Rome. They saw the benefits of Roman occupation. They saw the riches that could be uh, brought from working together. They saw the comfort and the pleasures that came from the Roman mindset, from the Roman worldview. And so these, the Herodians were the Jews who were seeking to convince the rest of their people, accept their rule and accept their pleasures, accept their gods. So they're not a people without leaders. They're not a people without movers and shakers. They're not a people without influence. But Jesus looks upon them and he sees that they're a people without a shepherd. They're without a people to lead them to God. And this is why he looks upon them and he responds. 5,000 men, an uncountable number of women and children, poor, just traveled for hours, tired, weary, and hungry. What does he do? Look what he does. It says that he began to teach them many things. And the question we ask ourselves as we study this text is when did Jesus begin to feed the 5,000? When did Jesus begin to satisfy their greatest needs and their greatest longings, their greatest desires? It's when he opened his mouth and began to deliver to them the word of God. This is a profound text to me personally. It is the longing of my heart, of John's heart. We understand this is the greatest need of every man, woman, and child on the face of this earth. Not the social gospel, not more programs, but the word of God, the gospel. To prepare men and women for death, to prepare men and women for suffering, to prepare men and women to church to do the work of the gospel. And so why this is so encouraging to me this morning is that this same miracle is taking place at this very moment all over the world as faithful men stand behind the pulpit or sit in a small group opening the scriptures, the word of God and feeding God's people. And this is so, this provides much hope for me and for for Daniel and Alish today because this is what the Czech Republic needs. That's why I'm in the Czech Republic. It's smack in the middle of Europe. It's a country of 10 million people. If I reckoned it to another European country you'd be familiar with, I'd just say it's like England with a different language. Right? They have everything. 
Every modern accommodation you could like, every uh, technology, food, clothing, and shelter, it's all there. It's not an impoverished country. It's not a third world country. It's a first world country. It's a flourishing country. People are highly educated. They're uh, very independent. They're very industrious people. And when you look upon the outside, you would say they don't need anything. They're not going to run to Jesus because they're hungry. But the reality is that they are spiritually impoverished people. In the year 1415, uh, the great pre-reformer, Jan Hus, John Hus, he was burned at the stake. He was burned at the stake because as a Catholic priest, he began to study the, re- the pre-reformers. He began to read the works of John Wycliffe. And he began to translate these works into the Czech language. And he began to preach the gospel. He was a Catholic priest, read the scriptures, got saved, and started preaching the gospel to the Czech people. And Czech people were repenting in the droves. And the Catholic churches, the cathedrals were so packed out there was nowhere to go. So they, they built a massive chapel kind of like Grace Church, just four walls and a roof. And 3,000 people would stand there for hours as Jan Hus preached the gospel, preached the word of God. And the more he preached, the more people were saved. And the more people were saved, the more Rome grew in opposition until they finally burned him at the stake. And when they burned him at the stake, all heaven broke loose. (laughs) Because when they burned this man at the stake, Men went out throughout all the country and began preaching the gospel throughout the country. And little local churches, right, where there were, before there was just this cold, concrete building. And now men are beginning to preach the gospel. People are getting saved. And so these little churches start coming into, uh, into existence. Jan Hus was burned to death in the year 1415. By 1447, 50 years before Martin Luther began preaching justification by faith, Jan Hus is preaching the gospel. By the year 1500, there were, because of this work, there were nine solid evangelical churches scattered throughout the country preaching the gospel. Now remember, this is the size about Washington State. By the year 1548, there were 130 biblical, quote-unquote, evangelical churches preaching the gospel. By the year 1627, there were 440 evangelical churches, Bible-preaching churches in a country the size of Washington State. In the year 2014, there are nine. We've gone back to ground zero all the way back to the times before the Reformation. Nine churches, the, the greatest of them would be about 60 people preaching the word of God. And so when we look upon the situation in the Czech Republic, we have the same response as Jesus Christ. Our hearts are filled with compassion. The situation there is very bleak. Um, there are three mainline evangelical denominations very, very, very few of them would be preaching the word of God. One of the largest uh, in Prague this last month decided to cancel all their worship services. They decided that on Sundays they would meet to have discussion and they would have games and crafts. 
and that's taking the country by storm. And yet Jesus Christ looks upon his people, he looks upon men and women and he begins to teach them. And we know exactly what he preached to them because we have, we have what he preached, we have the Sermon on the Mount. He looked upon these people and instead of giving them the legalistic straw of the Pharisees, he begins to preach to them that only the, the poor in spirit will enter the kingdom of God. Instead of telling them it didn't matter how they lived, he said that only the righteous will enter the kingdom of God and only the righteous will be satisfied. And he began to preach to them that salvation apart from the work of God was impossible. Instead of preaching the empty straw of the scribes, he told the people that if you divorce your wife and marry another, you're going to hell. If you leave the wife of your youth, and in fact, he took it to such an extreme, he took the law of God to, such, to the heart to such depths, he said, if you look upon a woman with lust, you're going to hell. And so he's standing before literally 5,000 plus people, and he looks upon them and he says, not one of them has heard the way to salvation. Not one of them has heard of the grace of God. They're being strangled with millstones and thrown into the river. And he looks upon them with compassion and he begins to preach the word of God to them. Instead of telling the preaching of the zealots, instead of telling them to kill the Romans, he says, you've got to love them. You have to love them. And so from the minute that Jesus Christ opens his mouth, words of life are flowing out. And this is exactly what we need today. The United States of America is not in need of more leaders. And we could really just make the singular comparison that everything that the Jews had and their leaders is exactly what we have today. We have the Pharisees all around us. Every religion that is standing up and proclaiming some empty message, you do this and God will save you. And perform this law and cleanse yourself and do some good works. It's Phariseeism. We have the Sadducees all around us, liberal Christianity. We have the Herodians all around us, the, the politicians, the movers and shakers. Right? We have the, the Republicans preaching their Republican gospel. We have the liberals, the Democrats preaching their liberal gospel. God loves the Republicans. God loves the Democrats. God loves the European Union. The answer to all of our problems is the European Union. The answer to all of our problems is found in, in our political movement. And it's all straw. It's all empty. We have the zealots all over, the terrorists, the skinheads. And they're all being fed straw. And they're all full. Their bellies are full. Their bellies are extended. They continue to eat straw week after week month after month, year after year, and they feel like they're full and they don't know they're eating empty straw. They're dying of rickets, dying of spiritual scurvy, nothing of substance, nothing of vitamins. And so we understand the solution to the problems here in the United States, the singular solution to meet the soul's need in the Czech Republic is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I want to show you this morning, not only is our call to be faithful to the word of God, not only is our call to understand the sufficiency of the word of God to satisfy the deepest longings and the deepest needs of men and women and children, but I want to help us see how Jesus prepared them for what he was going to call them to do as well. Jesus not only taught his 
men the priority of feeding his sheep. But he, he teaches them one of the greatest lessons of all, and he begins in verse 35. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate, and it is already quite late. Send these people away. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and the villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, Jesus has probably been preaching here for a long time. We have other accounts, which we'll be studying in a couple months in our church. Uh, in chapter 8, Jesus is going to teach for three days straight. And the people haven't even eaten for three days. They listen all day to his teaching. They lie down to get up in the morning, and they listen to his teaching all day. They lie down to get up in the morning, and finally he says, I'm afraid to send them back. They're going to collapse. And so he makes bread. So Jesus has probably been teaching here all day. Now it's evening. The people are hungry. They traveled for uh, numerous miles. And so the disciples say, Jesus, these people are hungry. You need to send them out to get them something to eat. Verse 35 says there very clearly that the place is desolate. Again, we know from the last verse there, in verse 44, there are 5,000 men. Matthew tells us that it says very specifically not including women and children. We know there was women and children there. We do not know the exact amount. We could guess, but it's got to be... It's anywhere from five to, to 20,000 people. I mean, if men are taking their wives, if little children are going, there's thousands of people there. And so they understand that this is, this is phenomenal. Try to feed all these people. We were at Grace Church, and there's food everywhere. And it was a, there were 750 servants from Grace Church to meet the need of 3,000 men. Here we are in, the, in a desolate place. There's no McDonald's, there's no Rubio's, there's no In-N-Out, there's no Costco pizza, there's nothing. And so Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. It's almost like it's a rebuke. What, is he, what does he mean here? Why would he tell them to do this? And I think that's an important question to ask as we're studying this text. Why would Jesus tell his men in the middle of nowhere to feed three 5,000 plus people. We need to remember where the disciples just were. Back in verse 30, it says they just gathered back to Jesus and they're beginning to give him a report. Jesus had just sent his 12 disciples out throughout the region to preach the gospel. Mark 6, verse 13 says, And they were casting out demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. So we can imagine they're coming back from their trip. They're excited. Can you imagine casting out a demon? Can you imagine raising somebody from being lame or cleansing a leper? Like little children just coming back, excited. Jesus, you will not believe what I was doing. They're stoked. They're excited. They're super spiritual. And now Jesus says, I want you to feed 3,000 souls. I want you to feed 5,000 men. I don't know if it crossed their mind that Jesus was testing their faith or if Jesus was trying to up uh, the ante, but it's obvious that they, they don't get it at all. Right. In John 6, 4 through 6, we find out very specifically why Jesus says this to them. It says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, 
Where are we going to buy bread for all these people that they may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. So I want you to see very specifically, Jesus is leading them into a situation, into circumstances where they do not have the means to meet the need. Jesus is leading them into a situation that is way over their heads. 5,000 people. Are we supposed to run into the town? Verse 38 makes it clear that's not what he was expecting. How many loaves do you have? Go and look, he commands them. And they come back, five and two fish. Five loaves and two fish. It's almost like you can hear them just snickering. Jesus, we've got five loaves and two fish. This is what we found. That's a pathetic amount. In fact, John chapter six, verse nine, tells us that it was a little lad, this little kid. He had some food. One kid out of this multitude Maybe we should read the text and it says Jesus looked upon the multitudes and he, found, he felt compassion on them because they were like men without a mother. Right? No mom packed them her lunch, sent them on their way, and they're standing there hungry. Now five loaves and two fish. Uh, these, these weren't loaves like you would buy at Costco. These are little barley biscuits and these little fish, are, they're probably just little dried herrings. It's nothing. It's a poor man's lunch. And the disciples standing in front of Jesus with their little lunch, they stole from this little kid. And verse 39 says, he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. So we won't get into all this. It's really profound the way Mark describes what's happening here. But he says they sat down in groups. The word there is uh, symposia, where you get symposium. It was very organized. It was very structured how Jesus had them sit down. And it says they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. Literally, the, the word there, it's, a, it's doubled there. It means like a garden bed. It's just this incredible picture of Jesus directing his men to shepherd the people, to get them situated so they can be ready to do what Jesus is going to have them do next. He gets them organized. He gets them seated. And verse 41 says he took the five loaves and the two fish and he looks up towards heaven and he blessed the food. Eulogeo. He spoke a good word regarding the food. Standing in front of 5,000 plus people with a little lunch, and he says, Father, thank you for this food. Thank you for providing all of these people with lunch. Amen. And the disciples are looking at Jesus. You're mad. They're staring at him in shock. And Jesus broke the loaves and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided up the two fish among them all. The verb there, it's an imperfect verb, means that he just keeps giving them out. He breaks the loaves. The, the, the verb there, broke, is eris, means that he broke it. He's broken them all up. He got those five crackers, he broke them up. He's got them in his hands. And then, imperfect verb, he just starts handing them out to the waiters. Hands them out to the deacons. He hands them out to the disciples. And the disciples are taking the food from Jesus' kitchen and they're taking it to the people and handing them the food to eat. 
and just keeps doing it over and over. Living bread dispenser. He divided up two fish among them all. In other words, not one person was left without anything. And the disciples, they're watching the entire thing. They're watching Jesus do this. They're watching the whole thing. They're watching his hands. And I'm sure, you know, John must have taken the food. He's walking out. He's, he, he hands the person the crackers. He hands them out. And on the way back, he's just wondering what in the world is going on here. How is this, how is this taking place? The question I have is how many times have you read this story? How many times have we read this? How many times have I read it? And I, I confess that until this time, until I was able to study the text, I don't think I really understood it before. Because there are some amazing principles, but I think there's something very clear that Jesus is seeking to teach them here. Jesus purposely tells them to give them something to eat. And the disciples come to Jesus with the most pathetic resources you could possibly imagine. And with that amount, he commands them to feed the people. And I think this is exactly what Jesus wanted them to learn. The amount that they brought to Jesus was nothing. It was a very meager, humble, pathetic offering. And yet through their hands, through the hands of the disciples, Jesus met the need of over 5,000 people. This is not social gospel. This is not the call for a cornerstone to start a free food truck ministry. It's not the call, it's not the call for you to, to begin to look for some program and some means to meet all the needs of the needy around you. It is a call for us in the Czech Republic and a call for you to look and to see the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. The absolute sufficiency of of the power, of the care, of the shepherding of Jesus Christ. It is a call to look to Jesus for the solution to the needs of the world. It is a call to look to Jesus Christ to meet the needs of the greatest problems of the people around you. Jesus is the solution, not us. You're dealing with people that are in sin that you cannot comprehend. There are people enslaved in sins that I don't even know those kinds of sins exist. There are people so deep in sin that there's nothing you can do. Their marriages are just just broken. They're enslaved to pornography. They're on their third marriage. This lady from our church on her third marriage I can't even, I don't want to tell you how much debt, how much weight they bore, constantly sick. And you meet with them. And they're crying and they're throwing their burdens upon you and you feel this crushing weight upon your own shoulders. And your immediate fleshly response is, what can I do? What can I do? 
And you meet someone on the street and they have no place to go. And you immediately think, what, what can I do? And I'm not in any means saying that we shouldn't meet the needs of men and women. But our first response must and always needs to be to look to Jesus Christ as a solution. When Jesus asked them to feed the people, they immediately looked to their own means. They immediately began to think, how can I do this? And it is impossible what Jesus wants me to do. Well, that's the point. It is impossible. How do you plant a church in an atheistic country that it's not even that they hate Jesus, it's just that they don't want to hear Jesus? How do you start a conversation with a person who just would think that talking about Jesus is the most idiotic, stupid waste of time? It's a worthless, it's worthless. And so you begin to think about all these different means. We've got to start this sort of program. If we use this sort of program and we use this gentle approach and, and we can win people over with our music or we can win people over this program and, and then pretty soon they're in the church and, and then now you've got to keep them there so you, start, you say nice things to them and, well, we could talk about all this. And because that's what the churches in the Czech Republic are filled with. They're filled with men who are looking to the solutions of men to meet the needs of men. And it is the greatest temptation, I think, that any pastor faces. When you look upon the weight of the world, when you realize that you're in a country with nine churches and there are over 10 million people that have no knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it's so tempting to look to yourself to find some sort of means and solution to meet the needs of the people. And yet Jesus wanted them to learn this lesson before he sent them out to do the work of the gospel. Because if he sends them out to do the work of the gospel but they do not believe in the power of the gospel, they'll blow it all up. These 12 men were the means. Jesus leaves, and he leaves these 12 men in charge of the most precious message of all time. And if at any point they begin to doubt the power of the message, they begin to doubt the sufficiency of the Savior, at that moment they just cut off all hope. And so Jesus wants them to learn in this moment that he alone is sufficient for the work that he is calling them to do. I want you to see this here. I think it's phenomenal. and I think Jesus did this very clearly. He could have taken the food. He could have broken it in his hands. And he could have said, okay, guys, I want you to follow me. And I want you to watch what I do. And he could have just walked through the crowds. He could have walked through the people and, and come to their little grassy knoll and just hand them out the bread. And perhaps they would have been left with the thought, well, that's what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to, he wants us to break bread. He wants us to make bread. He wants us to give it to the people. But instead, Jesus stands back, he blesses the Lord, he breaks the bread, and he begins to hand it to his men. And through these 12 men that he's trained up, that he has taught, that he has shown them what it means to be a servant and shown them what it means to be a lion, and they're handing out the bread. And then they come back to their Lord and they get another load and they go back out and they're just constantly coming back to Jesus for more and they're constantly coming out and dispensing what they've received. Jesus is showing them that he will use them as the means to accomplish his will. They must look to him. Jesus has the power to meet the needs of the people around us, but he will use you. He, he must use you. But you must come to him. You must depend upon him. You must believe that he is sufficient. 
You must believe that, I think that's what made this week so powerful, that those men simply stood behind this book and dispensed its truths. And they they preached it with power. And we simply come to people and we deliver them the profound and yet so simplistic message of the word of God. Jesus Christ is calling you to do the impossible. He is calling you to do what is not humanly possible. You think feeding 5,000 people in the desert is difficult. Try getting saved. Try loving your enemies. Try suffering, suffering with joy. Who can suffer with joy? Jesus commands us to do it. How about killing legalism? How do you kill pride? How do you bless those that persecute you? How do you say, I I love you? I speak a good word to you. I bless your soul. I praise God for the marks. I praise God for the spitting. I praise God for the mocking. How do you do that? Try to live in righteousness, kill sin, defeat the schemes of the devil, love God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your might because that's what Jesus commands us to do. But the question is, how can we do such things? The disciples are standing next to God in the flesh. They're standing next to the sovereign creator. And he says to them, you get them something to eat. Send them. He doesn't say send them away. He says, you get them something to eat. And all they come to Jesus with is a handful, a few loaves and a few fish. And that is the point because it's the same for us. It is only when we realize how insufficient we are that we will realize how sufficient Jesus Christ is. It is only when we realize how helpless we are that we will see what great hope there is in Christ. It is only when we realize we have no righteousness that we will come to see that Jesus Christ, he is our righteousness. It is only when we're on the very bottom that we'll see that he's on the very top. And it's only when we see how weak we are that we will see how strong he is. And that's what brings me personally great hope. Nine little Bible preaching churches in the Czech Republic. Nine little loaves. And yet it's sufficient. It is sufficient. If those little churches will stay faithful, if Cornerstone Bible Church will stay faithful, and trusting in the word of God, preaching the word of God, you will see radical things. I confess to you that I've been learning this lesson for the past 10 years or five years. I confess to you with shame that my attitude really in going to the Czech Republic was I will just duke it out. I will labor, Lord, faithfully for the next 10, 20, 30 years. I have no expectations. I'll just be faithful and I, just, I believe that even if I'm faithful and I don't see one convert, that I'll die and I'll be rewarded. Well, I, I still believe that. But I think the problem was that I just really doubted in many ways the sufficiency and the power of Jesus Christ. And I praise God that he's breaking my heart over this and that he's showing me 
he will do and is doing far beyond all we could ask or think. Jesus takes the little we bring to him. Jesus takes the little that you sent over to the Czech Republic. He takes the little family you've sent over to the Czech Republic. He takes the little men that God has raised up in the Czech Republic. He takes the word of God that's preached on Sunday to 30 people in the Czech Republic. Breaking bread every Sunday. And people are getting saved. The church is growing. Look what verse 42 says. And they all ate and were satisfied. It was sufficient. Over 5,000 men plus women and children. And they're, they're satisfied. It means they're full. They're satiated. Their spiritual longings have been, have been met. Their, their physical needs have been met. They're full. He fed them. And Jesus is saying that I'm sufficient for you this morning. Jesus is saying that everything that I am is sufficient for everything that you need. That Christ is sufficient for all of our everyday needs. We need to come to him every day. We need to come to him. This is so simple, I understand. I understand this concept. I understand this, but please hear me again. I I preached on prayer last Sunday, I understand that. But please hear me again. I beg of you, the same way that Pastor John begged you this morning, I beg of you to go to Jesus every day. To go to him. Do not be deceived that because you have a car and a job and a house that you are sufficient. Do not be deceived that you have wisdom to live in this evil world. Do not be convinced that you can live one day apart from Jesus Christ. You cannot. You cannot live for him. You cannot love him. You cannot love the lost. You cannot serve the lost. You cannot build a church. You can do nothing apart from him. If you will come to him daily, you will come to his word, you will bow yourself before him and plead in prayer. He will answer you. And you may, every morning you may get up and you may say, I don't feel anything. I don't feel emotional. I don't feel passion. I don't feel this great hunger and thirst for righteousness. But he will satisfy your souls. He will strengthen you. He will meet the needs of others through you. Jesus Christ is sufficient. It is a call for us to turn to him, to trust in him, to believe in him. he will meet your need husbands he will meet the needs of your wives and your children to feed the souls of your little one to shepherd your wives and they will all eat and they will be satisfied and if you don't believe me (laughs) that's what this text is about look at verse 43 if the sufficiency of Christ is not what Jesus wants to teach them Look at the lesson that the disciples learned in verse 43. And they picked up 12 full baskets of broken pieces and also fish. Every single disciple at the end is standing there next to their risen, next to the Savior 
with a basket of bread. Not 13, not 14, not 11, but 12. And every single disciple had received bread and they dispensed everything Jesus gave them. So they're probably, you know, all these little grassy tables, they're all full, they've handed everything out. They're probably walking back to Jesus. They're tired, they're hungry. They're like me. They said, Jesus, send these guys away so they can get something to eat. And they're really thinking, Jesus, I'm hungry. Send these guys away, I need to sleep. <laughs> they're walking back to Jesus. They're like, oh, all they're, they're all satisfied. They're all eating, my hands are empty. And they walk back to Jesus and they're right in for them is a basket of bread. It's phenomenal. For hours they passed out bread, left with nothing, and now they stand before Jesus with leftovers. And so my point here is that this is the way ministry works. Everything that Jesus is giving you is so that you would give. He is asking you to give your life. He is asking you to give your time. He is asking you to give your money. He is asking you to give your heart. And you'll think, the, the cost is so great. I'm so tired. I have nothing left. But in the end, you'll stand there with a full basket. Jesus will use you. He, want, he is putting resources in your hands. I want you to understand that. What you have as a church is phenomenal. The life that Jesus Christ has given you at this present moment is a phenomena, and he has given you and me so much, and he wants to dispense it through you. He wants you to raise up more men. He wants you to plant churches. He wants you to send out more pastors. He wants you to send out more missionaries. And I promise you this, if you will devote yourself to giving everything you have away, in the end, when you stand before Jesus Christ, you will have a full basket. If you will walk by faith and give away your money and give away your resources, in the end, you'll stand before Jesus. And he will give you far more than you can imagine. And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. And you will stand in the presence of the living Savior with men and women and children that you fed, that you ministered to. It was not from them, but it was through them. It was not to them, it was to him. But in the end, they got the reward. In the end, they emptied themselves and Christ gave them back tenfold. And so my prayer for you this morning is that you would let it go through you. Let it pass through your hands. Let your life pass through your hands. Let your children pass through your hands. Train them up, prepare them to love Jesus. Give them a passion for missions. In this room or in that room are the next pastors. In that room are the next missionaries. I promise you. If you are faithful, God will give you the greatest blessing you could ever have. He will raise up your children and he will send them out to the nations. There's no greater blessing a church could ever have than to be the means to reach the nations. And if you give your children a heart, 
if you teach them how to pray and show them what it means to love Jesus and show them what it means to serve and let your children pass through your hands, you'll be like Job and you'll have far more in the future kingdom than you could ever imagine. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you so much. Lord, it is so humbling we stand before you this morning to see all that you've given to us. Lord, we love you because you have first loved us. And everything you have given to us, though, it is a, just a continual manifestation of your love towards us. Lord, your desire is for us to see that you are sufficient and you've given us these things to meet the needs of those around us. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would bless this church. I pray you would bless this pulpit. And that Sunday after Sunday after Sunday as what may seem like an insignificant sermon or just a, a common sermon or whether it's just a radical, powerful sermon, I pray that week after week after week as the word of God meets the needs of the peoples, that they in turn would meet the needs of those around them. Father, we praise you for your precious word. We praise you for your precious church. I praise you for these precious men and women. And I praise you for this precious, this precious moment. And I pray that, Lord, that the work that is being done here would, would truly echo around the world. It's not just some cheesy slogan or some cheesy phrase. It's not just that the local church, just this single local church, has the means to, to change and transform the whole world. But, Lord, the ripple effect is phenomenal. And the number of men and women that you can use to meet the needs of those around us begins, Lord, here with these men and women. So we pray you would do it, exalt your name, magnify your name, glorify your name. And in your name we pray, amen.